previously on Save Me From My Shelf. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Picture the scene. London, the South Bank. Southwark, to be precise. We're at the pub. We're doing Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. I can't remember what year it was, 1405. This is, this is an unusual one, this is a first for us, where we're giving a blanket sexual content warning. Quote, dark was the night as pitch, or as the coal, and at the window out she put her hole. <laughs> so, he's kissed a hairy ass. <laughs> English literature, ladies and gentlemen, one of your greatest classics. And he decides, you know what, Alison's a bit of a tart, and I'm gonna pay her back for this. So he's like, oh, oh, you wanna go low? I'll go low. I'll go straight to hell, that's how low I'll go. Meanwhile, we're in the other bed, the one with the daughter and Alan. He is going until dawn. Till dawn? Did he eat that Super Mario star he kept around for energy? Give me the conjugal nasty or else. Funny fact, I'm a demon straight from hell. Stop. The horse is called Scott. Was every horse named Scott? <laughs> so I'm going to take the frying pan as payment. Yeah, out of the frying pan. You've not got a frying pan. <laughs> That's the saying goes. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf, and affordable public transport over here is Daniel. I'll have you know the public transport shit, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, Dodge, I, can't, I don't know any of the names of the cars that you have over there. Studebaker over there, is that me? Dodge Studebaker. Or it could be the Chattanooga Choo Choo over there, is that me? So this is just a note that here at Aston University, we have started up a new MA English program. It's particularly well suited for teachers of English. So if you are a teacher in the greater Midlands area, please check out our master's program at Aston and maybe Daniel and I will teach you. What a horrifying thought. We've had a few more letters. We've got one from AM, so thanks a lot for that. Just a general, you know, two thumbs up for the Otranto episode, so I won't, you know, go into too much detail, but thank you for, for, for your support, AM. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very grateful. And uh, we had another one, we had a recommendation, didn't we? Uh, yeah, we had a, an anonymous write-in who just said, you should do Les Miserables. That was it, wasn't it? Yep. It was a lot shorter than Les Miserables, the email. <laughs> the email. Uh, Most things are. Yeah. Uh, maybe we will one day. And what is our text today, you all might be asking? Well, today we are doing part two of the Canterbury Tales. So please go back and listen to the first episode if you haven't already. We're only doing a few of the Canterbury Tales in full, but we will cover all of them, at least in brief, so some of them will be just a sentence or two. In our first episode, we did all the background, the set the scene, and the first few tales. This episode will have the, all the rest of the tales, plus our casting, our Goodreads analysis, and advice. And I'm still here too, uh, lurking just below the surface, 
We also have a bit of an unusual situation here. As you all know, Daniel and I do not have guests on this podcast. However, my best friend Justine, who's a medieval scholar, always gets really mad at me whenever we do a medieval text because I make these big assumptions about a period I know nothing about. So she is here on the Save Me From My Shelf red phone hotline, and she's going to call in whenever we make some sort of gross assumption. This is also your fair dues warning. These episodes are not safe for work. The Canterbury Tales is pretty pornographic at times. We have sort of gotten into that body spirit and we'll be making several dirty jokes and, you know, things like that. So just, you know, brace yourself. If this one isn't for you, okay, we'll see you at the next one. So we last left off with the Friar's Tale, didn't we? A thrilling tale of uh, saucepans, frying pans, um, other kinds of pans. Uh, Devils. Pa- De- oh yeah, I forgot about that. Devils as well. Horses named Scott. Yeah. And uh, uh, Robin Hood. Oh, yeah, it was a weird tale. Yeah, not like any of the others. <laughs> yeah. In our totally normal book. Yeah. Okay. So, what are we on to now? We are on to The Summoner's Tale. What does he not like? The tale about the, the summoner. <laughs> summoners go to hell and are all evil. Uh, no, funnily enough, he didn't much care for that. So the real summoner who's listening to that story that was just told about how all summoners are bullshit, he gets up and he's like, hold my earrings, you friar tuck motherfucker. I'll show you a story. Friar tucker. That doesn't work. You friar fuck mother tucker. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. I love that. So the summoner, the summoner gives us some good lines. He's like, this frere boasteth that he knoweth hell and God is what? That's little wonder. Frayers and fiends being but light asunder. So the point is that, you know, yeah, you know so much about hell because you've, you're there all the time. And he tells a little story during his prologue of a friar who had a vision of hell and saw millions of friars down there. And after that, quote, unto his body again and he awoke. But natheless, for fear it he croak, croak, so was the devil's arse always in his mind. That is his heritage of the very kind. So... If you ever see a friar, mm-hmm. always got the devil's ass on their mind. <laughs> I mean, but again, who amongst us? No. So the summoner decides to tell a tale about a shitty friar. So a friar goes about preaching and basically begging everyone for money, which he wants to keep for himself rather than for the glory of God. No. And he lays it on really thick, too, telling them all how bad hell is and how they'll all go to hell if they don't fork up the dough. And he also requests food, like he's going trick-or-treating, but he, like, walks away with a rack of lamb instead of a mini Snickers. (laughs) So, the friar is... I don't know what a DoorDash is. (laughs) I wrote that bit. I said the friar is doing his weird reverse DoorDash, where he's going around to different houses and collecting food instead of delivering it. DoorDash is like a, it's like a Deliveroo sort of deal. Okay. And he comes upon <laughs> a rich man named Thomas who's been taken ill. He kind of guilt trips the guy saying, I notice you haven't been in church lately. <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, it's because I've been dying in bed. I'm dying over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what the f*** you want? Yeah, the, the New York bit, no, this one. Thomas... <laughs> So if Thomas weren't so rich, you know, if he threw a bit of money the friar's way, then perhaps his health and bad luck would improve. Thomas, your faith is brittle. You're ill because you've given us too little. He's like, excuse me, I have given loads to the church over the years to a number of religious men. And the friar responds with, quote, 
what is a farthing worth if split in twelve? An undivided thing is, if you delve into your wits, stronger than when it's scattered. Thomas, by me, you shall never be flattered. So basically, like, well, yeah, you've given loads, I guess, to lots of men in, like, tiny little bits. It might have added up a lot to you as the whole, but you should you should just give, like, a big t bunch to me. Like, mm -hmm. give me a lot of money. Give me the money. Give me the money, is what he's saying. And Thomas, unsurprisingly, gets really irritated by this. So the friar then uses this opportunity to tell three separate stories about men from history who were punished for their sin of wrath. Uh, and these frame narratives are just taking the piss. Like, no, I'm not I even, like I'm not covering them. Stories within stories. One of them's about Cyrus, first king of the Persians. Uh, that's all well and good, but like, let's, we gotta keep things okay. moving. Let's keep it snappy. But I like that they always like, uh, King Solomon and Caesar both did this. And I'm like, what? That's so weird, that kind of, the way they don't really divide biblical mm. and, and ancient, or like cl classical history. Hail Caesar! So at the end of the friar's long story, which we're not going to cover, poor Thomas, who just wants some chicken soup and a fucking nap, he loses it. Quote, the ailing man was nearly mad with ire. He would have very gladly burnt the friar. Mm. Him and his lying speech and false profession quote, I'll give you what I have in my possession. So Thomas is like, okay, come here. I, I, I have I have one thing that I can give you, but I'll only give it to you on the condition that you promise to split it 12 ways with your brothers at the monastery. And the friar swears to it. <laughs> I'm going to give this section to Daniel because it seems... <laughs> Up your alley. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> you are smiling so broadly right now. This, you are so happy. This is definitely my favorite story. Why? Thomas, well, we'll see. Thomas says, Great, I'm actually hiding the thing I wish to donate, so grow up under my ass and you'll find it there. The friar wastes no opportunity to, <laughs> to get his hand down. A lot of people are pranking other people. With their buttholes. I don't want to prank somebody by getting them to touch my ass. <laughs> but clearly back then, that was just all fair game. I don't know. I feel like I'm losing out in that situation, but whatever. So, and down he launched his hand and searched the cleft. In hope of profiting by gift or theft, when the sick man could feel him here and there, groping about his fundament with care, into that friar's hand he blew a fart. There never was a farm horse drawing cart that farted with a more prodigious sound, mad as a lion than the friar spun round. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? Come on, get a sound effect in there. I, I will not. Right, that would cheapen it. That I will not. Let's have, let's have it in the middle English as well. Come on, let's have all the versions. And doing his hand, he launcheth to the cliff in hope for there to find a yift. And when one this sick man felt his this frere about his tool, that's fundament in the old English anus. Grope there and here, amid his hand, he leaped frere a fart. Fart has not changed. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? That's an important word for us. There nis no capel horse, drawing in a cart that might have leaped a fart of sitcha soon. Are yeah. farm horses famous for farting <clears throat> loudly? Yeah, you're riding that horse, it's fine in your face all day. That's why you don't want to be a peasant. You're riding the horse and it's farting? No, no, you're, you're, you're carting it. You know, you're out there on the cart. Farts. <laughs> the Jesus Christ. I'm a bit jealous that you're going to get the next bit, which I think is even better. But go on. You can I have this. this bit. No, you have it, but I love this bit. Okay, well, you can you can take any line you want. So, Thomas farts into the friar's hand. He's like, there, split that 12 ways, you jerk. Yep. So the friar, furious, he storms off to the local lord to demand justice for this insult. 
the Lord is really more interested in how to split a fart 12 <laughs> ways. One of his assistants comes up with this. Yeah, so, yeah, one of, the, one of the Lord's servants pipes up and he's like, I have an idea. <laughs> Carry on, yeah. And he's like, the friar. <laughs> this is so stupid. He's like, the friar needs to go get a cartwheel that has 12 spokes on it. And line up all the other friars around it, and this friar, <laughs> and this friar will sit in the middle, and fart on the hub of the wheel, <laughs> and the fart will then travel down each spoke equally, and each of his fellow friars will get an equal sniff at the end of the spoke. This is Daniel. This is an accountancy course designed by a German fetish pornographer. Hey, we got what's the line we get? As well as Euclid did or Ptolemy. This is the high amount of stuff. <laughs> this is no German fetishist. I personally would like to be one of those friars going, uh Friar Jeff can have my share. I'm good. No, Thanks. We want it. We, we love it, don't we folks? And the Lord is so impressed by his servant's suggestion that he gifts him a new outfit. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> Everyone in this story is a fucking clown. I love a good tangential ending like that, though. Where the, the main parts, the friar and, the, and Thomas... Never resolve. It's just about... <laughs> You get an outfit. <laughs> That's a great way of ending a story. Also, this is just like this seems like the quintessence of medieval culture to me. Weird like legal wranglings to like a metaphysical degree, farting, lords, corrupt priests. You know, that's it. That's this is it in a nutshell for me. I don't know. So now we're on to the Clark's prologue. So the host. Harry Bailey, the innkeeper, we're back in the frame story, turns to the clerk, you know, the Oxford scholar, and is like, you know, you're such a fancy pants Oxbridge type. You've been sitting quiet this whole time. How you been doing that then? Because they do love piping up, don't they, the Oxbridge types, listeners. And they're like, come on, tell us something wild, none of your highfalutin stuff. Speaketh so plain at this time, we yow pray that we may understand what ye say. So, you know, don't be going into all your bloody literary theory or whatever <laughs> it is you're up to. Don't like that, do we, listeners? So the clerk goes, okay, picture the scene. What? Is he a piss take of me? Is that what you're doing there? I would never, Daniel. I mean... Just because I am a clerk in this sense, but also did a PhD in clerks. I mean, I did start doing that as a joke, but you reacted to it so strongly. I'm going to keep doing it like I'm on a mission straight from God. I don't mind. You can do... Yeah. So... I should have done on you for the wife of bath. You should have. So the clerk goes, okay, picture the scene. A young, rich, hot Italian Marquis named Walter. So Walter is beloved by all his people, but he's a little too much of a good time guy. He's kind of not really a great long-term planner, and he has no intention of getting married and producing an heir. So some of his people are eventually like, listen, you really need to get on that, even though you think a chick is really going to like cramp your style. Mm -hmm. And eventually Walter agrees but on the condition that whomsoever he chooses will be treated by all as a princess. And as he's somebody who could feasibly, like, very easily marry a princess, everyone's like, yeah, of course, great, whatever, just marry somebody. Gawain. Is this, there's so much like this that's like Gawain as well, like that kind of like, I'll do it, but on this condition, like, all these kind of funny mm -hmm. legal wranglings. I don't know what that's about. What's, was medieval society highly legalistic? It seems like that. Yeah, everyone's wheeling and dealing. Yeah. Everyone's, it's, you're not going to like this, but it was kind of the Trump era it was like, of the yeah. world. 
It's the art of the deal. I'll do it <laughs> on these conditions. Okay, Gawain. Okay, Walter. It's deals. It's gropes. It's people who look funny. It's Trump. Um, so, the Marquis naturally chooses the daughter of the poorest wretch in his lands, a beautiful young girl named Griselda. Oh, Griselda. <laughs> oh, what a heartthrob. She's apparently very young. Uh, I was worried that we were going to get two pedo narratives in uh, this series, but here's a third. And the clerk sort of perves on you know, her for being very young for a bit, so that's nice. She's a hot local rustic about to get a serious glow up. Don't know what that means. Abby wrote that. What does that mean? It means a makeover. Oh, okay. Our local lord, very high up, decides to marry the bottom rung of society, and there is zero courtship, except to say that Walter probably saw her when he was out hunting or something. He thought she was like plump of fetlock, nice, whatever. Yeah. Who cares? We get none of this scene. We don't know why he chose her. He doesn't even tell her they're getting <laughs> married. She just kind of goes with the rest of the town as a spectator when they hear the local Marquis is having a wedding. She's like, oh, who's he going to marry? Poof, bitch, it's you. <laughs> um, what would he have done if she had like been like, I have a headache today or like I got I got stuff to do. I got like berries to pick um... and didn't turn up. I would be so angry if I had a wedding sprung on me when I hadn't even had a chance to like change my dress first. Go to the toilet. Uh, shave my legs, you know, you want to look good, you want to brush your teeth, you want to, like, make it... Shave my ass, yes. Um, yeah, that's what the Marquis likes. But, I guess the Marquis thought of all of that because he makes sure Griselda is thoroughly yassified on the spot in some jewels and some gold, and she's like, okay. And everyone in the church is shook, and some of them are very offended in a sort of, like, how dare she to be broke sort of way. But they get married, and he makes Griselda promise to obey his every whim without complaint. Nice. This bitch isn't even allowed to frown for the rest of her live-long days. That's how serious this promise is, right? Like, that's going to be the basis of the story. So, years pass, everybody loves Griselda. Eventually, she has a daughter, and the Marquis decides to use this sort of incredibly vulnerable postnatal moment to test his wife's constancy, even though he's had years to do this by now. So he comes in and basically yanks the baby from her teat and goes, I'm going to throw this baby in the bin. Uh, we're going to kill this kid. And she's like, my child and I are your possession, and at your pleasure, on my heart's profession, we are all yours, and you may spare or kill what is your own. Do therefore as you will. So, Griselda... She's ice cold! She's, yeah, she's a cold and uh, no one says that. Damn, girl. So all she asks for is for the baby to be buried properly. Yeah, bury this little body in some place that besees no brides it Taurus. So that means where it... that beasts can't tear it to pieces. That's nice, isn't it? It's good. Nice, nice image. So, of course, the Marquis doesn't kill his own baby. I don't know why, of course, but the Marquis doesn't kill his own baby. He gives it somebody else to raise in a secret place. <laughs> Years pass, and eventually Griselda has another kid, a boy. The Marquis is like, oh, that's great. So he lets her keep the kid for two years. But then he comes in and says, people still think you're trash. They're not impressed by your low breeding, and they're cross that I've wasted my perfectly good aristocratic sperm on you. So we will have to get rid of this kid too. And Griselda's like, well, you know, it's part of the deal. I'm contractually obliged to say that this is a great plan. Do what you like. You know, I love you more than the kids. Yeah, you get people staying together for the kids, don't they? <laughs> but this is more like I'm doing it for you. Staying I'm killing together. the kids for you. <laughs> yeah. 
so years and years go by and she apparently lives very happily with her children's murderer and he's like wow I love this gal this chick is amazing unfortunately other people aren't so impressed there's a bit of ill feeling in the Marquisette where they they're all starting to whisper about Walter being some kind of horrible child murderer and so things are going bad he's, he's polling terrible numbers isn't he? <laughs> um, could yeah, be laugh at your own joke. Uh, <laughs> I forgot I wrote that. Yeah, it was a good joke. So he's like, okay, one more game though. So he fakes a papal bull from the Pope. Is there any other kind of papal bull? Maybe one from the anti-Pope, I don't know. <laughs> was the anti-Pope going on around this time? Who knows? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. Aha, you're both right. Oh, but you're also both wrong. So, sorry, I'm going to be a bit of a dick here for a moment, but, uh... When Chaucer was writing the Canterbury Tales, this was during the Great Papal Schism, when there were two rival popes, one in Avignon and one in Rome. So, depending on who you supported, each one was the anti-pope. Now, as it happens, England supported the Roman pope. So, I guess this fake papal bull would possibly could have come from a fake papal anti-pope, pope anti-pope. Sorry, lost my train of thought now, but, uh, yeah, great schism. Two popes. The papal, the papal bull's gonna get Walter to divorce Griselda, and so he can marry someone else, and Griselda can just kind of go back to where she came from, her shack. He strips her publicly. Jesus! And makes her walk home in her underwear. So she, they're doing a sort of, like, Cersei Lannister shame shame bell sort of deal you yeah. didn't watch game of thrones you don't know what that means i did yeah it's like that but slightly less rubbish so poor griselda has had two of her kids murdered and now been divorced and like kicked to the curb and she's like it's okay i'll just sit quiet and self-care my way out of being crushed to death <laughs> by the ruling class like we all do <laughs> <laughs> but walter's like no you won't dummy so he calls her back the next day and he's like, oh, by the way, you're going to help me to arrange the wedding to my new lady. She is hot, she is young, and she is rich. She is like like next door to the Queen of Sheba. This is a high quality broad and you're going to like witness it all. Yeah, so this is like, this is dangerous territory, Walter. Like clearly you have not read the tale of Medea lately. Bit of classical learning there. Elsie's up. From Abby. Well, just just Medea had a similar situation where her husband divorced her for another broad, and she's like, "Oh, hey, ex-husband, please enjoy this beautiful wedding dress I'm sending to your new bride—a dress that's possibly smoking with poison as soon as you open the box." Oops, she's dead. How did that happen? You're um, a lot like this, Clark, aren't you? You love your classical allusions. Not like me. I'm a man of the people. This is Griselda, not Medea. Griselda is very happy to agree to all of this horrible stuff, so she throws a pretty nice <laughs> bash uh, this burlap, uh, aka oh, no. um, Hessian. There's uh, a big, a big uh, plastic jar with a tap on it with cocktails in, but they're all kind of warm and stuff. You know, you, we've all been to weddings. We know what they're like. <laughs> the young bride is very young. She's only twelve. Same age as the wife of Beth. I have a prefab here. Lay which... it on me. Which is, we've had a lot of pedophilia jokes on this podcast this season. Lolita, turn of the screw. But it's getting a little old. We need to get new jokes. Younger ones. Uh, uh, Walter makes Griselda say how beautiful his new wife is. And she's like, yes, 
but please don't treat your new wife like you did me. So she does have a little kickback there. But then, it was all a joke, just, just a good joke. It's actually our daughter. She's dressed up as my new bride. So I don't know what's going on there. Does the daughter know what's going on? Is the daughter in on the joke? Could you imagine being 12 and inexperienced and thinking you were about to marry this like really hot young Marquis only to find out it's your fucking dad? I just had a note that everyone should get therapy. Maybe not family therapy, because uh -huh. I think they should all spend a lot of time apart. Yeah, you go to Lombardy, you go to <laughs> Neustria, you go to Pomerania. I'm trying to think of some medieval countries here. When did Dacius stop being a place? Yeah, Dacius, I don't know, that's long gone. <laughs> oh no, that's, like that's, a, thing, that's the it? classical thing coming back, man. I played a lot of Rome, Rome Total, Total War. War. Yeah. I played a lot of medieval Total War, so... Also, the little not-dead boy is there too. Hooray! Everyone's alive! And Walter and Griselda aren't really divorced. Everyone lives happily ever after. And the clerk, who's telling this frame narrative, instructs all wives, quote, to ape Griselda's humility. Really? We have, we have no Wait, lessons for no, husbands? He says something else. He says, this story is said not for that wives should follow Griselda, as in humility, for it were importable, i.e. intolerable, though they would, but for that every white in his degree should be constant in adversity, as was Griselda. So it's like everybody needs to tolerate misery to a degree. That is so much better, Daniel. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank you for educating me. That's all right. I just love to learn. Uh, yeah, I thought this was a bit like the Castle of Otranto. Yeah, I got vibes from that as well. Right down to an Italian aristocrat having an improbably non-Italian name. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, that was time we spent. Yeah, yeah. Let's forget about that. Let's get on to a bit more fun. A bit more fun and bawdy. A bit of slap and tickle with the merchant's <laughs> tale. So, the merchant begins his story, you know, with his prologue as they all do, and he's bitching about his wife. The worst that may be. She's a shrew in all, he says. And they've only been married for two months. Oh, off to a good start. Yeah, well, yeah. So, in light of this, he moves on to his tale. There was a rich old knight in Lombardy called January. Like the month, you know. Unmarried, but, quote, he'd always followed, i.e. his bodily delight on women. There as was his appetite. So he's not married, but he does fancy women. He's Al Pacino. Uh, for example. Um, <laughs> right, now I'm gonna have to do that voice. Or like a or like a Jack Nicholson type, just a, you know, a dirty old man, let's say. Yeah, a randy bugger. However, when he turned 60, for whatever reason, out of holiness or for dotage, he decided that, he, yeah, now I do want to get married. None other life, said he, is worth a bean, for wedlock is easy and so clean that in this world it is a paradise. Wives are obedient, they can look after their old husbands, they may even produce heirs. What's not to like? January announces to his mates that he, he wants a young wife, you know, both because young women are more attractive. Gross old dude, what about you? What about your wrinkly old ass? Dimmer. And importantly, younger women are more malleable. A young thing may men guide. Right as men may warm wax with hands ply. Nice. Ew, yeah, ew, creepy. ew, you fuck. I like my, I like my women waxy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you know, I may look old, but, quote, mine heart and all my limbs be as green as laurel. Sort of, i.e., green all the year, which is basically like a, 
you know, you, you're picking up what I'm putting down. Yeah. It's a All my limbs, baby. All yeah. my limbs, yeah, yeah, find the phallus. So January has these two pals, Placebo and Justinus, and they sort of debate January's position. Placebo's generally like, gee, good idea, boss. <laughs> and <laughs> Whereas Justinus is a bit more like, be careful. You need to sort of check where she be wise or sober or drunk level. That's kind of like if a drunken person said drunk. <laughs> or proud, or else other ways, a shrew or a chidster? Or a chider, probably. A chidster, so many chides. Okay, a chidster. Every, I, this language makes you feel drunk. Yeah. It really does. They were well on the small bit, weren't they? January, though, he's not worried about this, and he sets his heart on one particular woman. What do you think she's called, Daniel? If Tuesday. <laughs> She's called May. Whoa. Yeah, this is my medieval factoid. I'm prepared to be corrected, but you know, we've got a May and December marriage these days. Mm -hmm. like, you know, an old man marrying a young woman. But what's going on with May and January? Surely January's the youngest month. Well, I thought, isn't there something that like in the Middle Ages, New Year was in April, on 1st of April? And that's why the tax year starts Ooh. on the 1st of April still. I'm thinking January is quite an old month back then. They get married with lots of classical and biblical allusions. They, they use pretty interchangeably, which I like. January has mixed feelings. He's keen to get her into bed, uh, to strain with her, quote, harder than ever Paris did Helen. Uh, but he also, he also pities her. Alas, so tender creature. Uh, now would God ye might well endure all my courage, it's so sharp and keen, so like, you know, you're not gonna be able to handle it, love, you know, I'm just so manly. Oh, God, this guy, he's, every man in this is drunk and farting and lusting. This is, this is Billy Bob Thornton in bad groom. <laughs> yeah, everyone's horrible. This is disgusting. So, the wedding guests are all ushered away quite quickly, and so... The only one left is January's squire, Damien, who also has the hots for May. Oh, January, drunken in pleasance in marriage, see how thy Damien, thine own squire, and thy born man intendeth for to do thee villainy. That's what our narrator says. So January's oblivious to all of this. He quaffs a few aphrodisiacs and gets to it. Justine, can you please tell us what are some medieval aphrodisiacs? I'm, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wow. Uh, so I think my relationship with your podcast has now come in a, uh, weird and slightly disturbing full circle because a medieval aphrodisiac, uh, one of them would have been, uh, beaver testicles. And I believe this is now the mm, third time I've brought up beaver testicles on your podcast. And, um, I'm not sure if I should be proud or ashamed of that. Probably a bit of both. But yeah, beaver testicles. So January had a great time on this wedding night. Good for him. But poor old May. Um, Daniel, I can't, I can't read this for shit. She praiseth not his playing worth a bean. The guy hasn't got, you know, what it, what it takes. This is an alphabet soup of regret is Middle English. Yeah. Back to the story. And Damien, his squire, meanwhile, is ill. <laughs> and January is really worried about him, so he sends May to go up and check on him. Classic error, my dude. Classic Chaucer, as well. <laughs> Will she resist Damien's charms? The short answer is no. 
The long answer is also no. <laughs> so Damien, you know, she, she goes in and she's like, oh, let me cool your favorite brow and all that crap. Damien slips a love note into May's hand. She's super thrilled. She memorizes all of his little cute little rhymes. And then she throws it down the privy. Right. I've got a question here. I've seen medieval toilets. You know, I've been to my fair share of castles. That's just a hole in the wall. People are going to see that letter come out of that hole. That's not a very private place, is it? Because the ones I've seen, they're like right at the top of the castle. You can see all the, the medieval sprayed sh** down mm. the side of the walls. I think people are just going to see those letters. The surf's going to look at that and be like, something... I can't read, but it's some, something weird's happening here. Exactly, yeah. Flawless. Yeah. Cornish accent. No, that was good, though. Okay, thank you. May writes back to Damien, reciprocating her love. January, meanwhile, is none the wiser, and he's keen to avail himself of his lady wife, as in when. And indeed, he's... Guys, he's built May a nice walled-in garden. For what? Pleasant strolling? Cultivating plants? In short, it's some kind of sex yard. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Daniel, but when when did this story go to Epstein's Island? <laughs> yes, it is like that. He's built yeah. her a sex yard, a caged-in sex yard. Yeah. So, bad news. January. He's blind. All of a sudden. I mean, you'll remember from our Dracula episode, too much sex will do that to you. Yeah. Or uh, too much not sex, if you catch my drift. So... Time for May and Damien to get together. So, with a wad of wax, hmm, remind you of anything? May makes a copy of January's key to the secret walled garden and gives it to Damien, who forges a copy. So, there's an irony. January thought May would be as moldable as wax. She's using wax again him. So, soon enough, spring comes and January's keen to give the sex garden a go. Garden. There's nothing wrong with it, it's just perfectly natural, it's the man and his wife. The, uh, the prefab I have here is, well, she's getting good at horticulture. Uh, very good. I feel like you've been very sex negative about the sex garden, sex garden negative. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, uh, do, okay, do you need me to turn it around? Do you, do you think he he heard the Field of Dreams voice? If you build it, she will... Uh, 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 very good. <laughs> so they go to the garden, May makes a sign for Damien to head in just before them. January makes a lot of gentle, loving remarks to May, who is meanwhile signalling for Damien to hide in a pear tree. No doubt a very funny farcical scene. This is such a sitcom caper, yeah. though. I have such a soft spot for chaos that I'm like, all right, let's see how this plays out. Yeah, you think it's like a sitcom? No. Damien gets in that pear tree, and suddenly, King and Queen of Fairyland turn up to watch it all, and we get a bit of commentary from them. I'm not going to go into detail, but the point is, is that they're kind of like, you know, ooh, Bitches, you know, they're kind of just like that. It's like, oh, I can't believe that. She's betraying him. So May says she wants a pair, but January, he's just so old and so blind now that he can't get one for her out of the tree. So May's like, oh, I'll, I'll go do it myself. And she uses January's back as sort of like a, a little stand. She, you know, g gives her a leg up into the tree. The merchant who's telling this story, by the way, in case we've forgotten, interjects. Ladies, I pray you that ye be not offended. I cannot gloss. I am a rude man, aka a commoner, and suddenly anon this Damian gan pullin' up the smock and in he throng. So mission accomplished? They're fucking in a pear tree? Yeah, you've heard the Christmas carol? <laughs> mission accomplished? No! 
And when that Pluto saw this greet wrong, to January he gave again his sight and made him see as well ever he might. So, so the, I'm sorry, the Lord of the Underworld, the Roman Lord of the Underworld, has turned up randomly. A.K.A. King of the Fairies. Hell, up. Uh, I guess, uh, now, here, for why not? Sure. He's in the garden watching it all. He just is watching, okay, and he's yeah. decided to give back the sight, okay. He's a, he's a, a double voyeur. He likes watching other men watching their wives, you know. Oh, Daniel, I've Googled that a lot. You don't have to tell me about <laughs> okay, that. Okay, yeah, you know about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> January looks into the tree. He's not impressed. He bellows at May, and she's cool as a cuke. She says, oh, what you. aileth yow? I did this to cure you of your blindness. <laughs> There's no thing better to make you to see than struggle. <laughs> with a man upon a tree. January's like, whoa, that's not true. That weren't no struggling. And she's like, you're just not used to seeing. It's been a while since you last saw. You probably thought I was doing something else, but I wasn't. Baby, what are you going to trust? Your eyes or me? Exactly. And January's like, mm, yes, you. Uh, so we have a happy ending. And the host, you know, uh, Harry Bailey, he's like, wow, yeah, women really are evil and deceitful. And everyone has a chuckle. That is true about women, though. And, oh, yeah. And we actually have a very important message, you know, to all of you listeners at Save Me From My Shelf about the evilness of women. And we actually have some special guest stars, uh, Kanye West and Mel Gibson, appearing in the podcast later for a very special segment. I just had a little remark. Sir Orfeo. I had to read that for my undergraduate. That was my one experience with medieval literature until doing this podcast. A kind of 13th century poem that's also got Pluto in it and I think he's also king of the fairies I don't know what's that what that's about okay so that's our last full tale we still have quite a few tales to get through but we're gonna tell them in a sentence or two we now move on to the squire's tale and this is an incomplete epic romance about Genghis Khan. Heartthrob. And it's probably stolen by Chaucer from the Thousand and One Nights, and there's a lot of gift-giving in this, and there's also a bit about a bird who gets cheated on by an asshole hawk. Next, the Franklin's Tale. So, we've got this kind of horrible jerk, I can't say that, we've got this horrible guy who courts an uninterested married woman, and she's like, you can only have sex with me if you make all the rocks on the coast of Brittany disappear. So he gets a sorcerer to do just that. Drama ensues. This is like the sorcerer's apprentice for incels. Yeah. Now we're on to the physician's tale. And that's about an evil Roman judge who tries to blackmail a man through the legal system into letting the judge marry this guy's hot adolescent daughter. The dad decides, instead of being blackmailed, to behead his daughter. And he does. And then everything kind of works out okay at the end, I guess, except for the daughter. Yeah, good one. So now we're on to the partner. This is quite a famous one, isn't it? So We should have done this yeah, one, I really. Don't, don't know why we didn't. Laziness. So, the partner tells about three drunken men in a tavern who decide they want to cheat death by killing death. Sounds like you're into a bit of a quandary there already. <laughs> they ride out to find him at an old oak tree, you know, where death hangs out, and instead they find a bag of money. 
Oh, I see what's going to happen here. It's very, you know, uh, come on, lads. These petards aren't going to hoist themselves. Yes, treasure of Sierra Madre. So they all, you know, they're all keen to get the money. They end up killing each other over the money. Death wins. Now we're onto the shipman's tale. A merchant's wife gets into a lot of debt over some clothes, but she's able to pay it off by having sex with people, including her own husband, who she also owes money to. Everyone's happy. Sounds like a nice one. Um, the Prioress's Tale. Now, here's one that we're all going to enjoy. It's incredibly anti-Semitic. It's a kind of sort of blood libel thing. Yeah, we're not even going to get into it because it's bullshit. There weren't even any Jews in England at that time because they'd all been kicked out, hadn't they? Because so, of, um... Anti-Semitism. Was it John? Was it John who kicked them out? Let's get Justine to tell us. Okay. Oliver Cromwell brought them back. Brought them back. Uh, so let's remember that. that uh, republics are good and monarchs are bad. I think a lot of Irish people are about to write in angrily. <laughs> they like republics, don't they, the Irish? Okay, take your vitriol out on Daniel, not on me, friend. It was Edward the First in twelve ninety, so he was a dick to the Scots, and he was also a dick to the Jews. Now we get to Sir Topas's tale. So there's a man in the woods trying to have sex with an elf queen. Woman there. Because this is Chaucer, there's a time and a place for sex. The time is always, and the place is why not here. Unfortunately, their sex gets interrupted by a duel, and this story isn't finished. This one and the next one are both told by the Chaucer character himself, and everyone that the reason it's not finished is because everyone's like, "This is so boring." I like that Chaucer would make his own story really boring. <laughs> so we get this next one, the tale of Melly B. There's a there's a breaking and entering, and the homeowner and his wife have a long legal discussion about how to proceed. So there you go. That's the other Chaucer one. And it's told in prose, unlike most of them, which told in verse. We're now on to the monk's tale. And if you can believe it, at this fucking late stage, <laughs> this shit is actually 17 short stories stuffed into a trench coat, all about the tragic endings of historical figures. So Lucifer, Adam, Samson, Hercules, Caesar, Alexander the Great, Nero. Hail Caesar! And the monk who's telling all these stories says he actually has a hundred stories to tell, but everyone begs him to shut up. He is bumming everybody out. And the host comes in with one of those like old timey giant hooks to like try to pull him off the stage. Yeah, although it'd probably be quite a modern hook. To <laughs> sort of 1890s musical thing. We get to the nun's priest's tale. This is quite a fun one, isn't it? Probably should have done this too. It's a kind of... Um, you know, fable. It's about a cockerel called Chanticleer. He has dreams about being eaten by a fox, then meets that fox who tricks and nabs him, but he escapes. So it's a kind of an Aesop's fable about pride. Then we get to the second nun's tale, and this is a biographical tale about Saint Cecilia. It's very dull. And I, my prefab that I have here is, she really puts the hag in hagiography. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> finally, a hagiography joke. <laughs> I thought you would like yeah. that one. Next, the canon's yeoman's tale. 
Yeah, Cannon's Yeoman. I remember. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so we're really getting into like the side B track of Chaucer's bullshit here. So it's just a sort of expose on the Yeoman's boss, who is a Cannon, who is also an alchemist. We're we're getting down to it. We're at the very end now. Brass tacks. We're we're at the Manciple's tale. There's a man named Phoebus who has a crow and a wife. Uh, and what's the difference? <laughs> and he locks the wife away in his house out of jealousy. His crow can apparently talk, because <laughs> of course it can, because why not? They're very clever. And <laughs> it reveals they can count to four. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I know. Um, and uh, the the crow reveals that the wife is secretly sleeping with some trashy dude. So Phoebus kills his wife in revenge, but then in a peak of remorse, kills the crow in a textbook don't shoot the messenger violation. And the moral of the story is aimed at the crow, which is mind your own business. Finally, well nearly finally, we've got the person's tale. So this isn't a story. What a shock. The boring person is a boring bastard. He tell, gives us a little lecture on penitence, and he's like, you're all sinners. I'm going to throw some shade on your sins. You should feel guilty, please. Okay, so now we get to the end. This is Chaucer's own retraction, where Chaucer then apologizes to us and to Jesus for the book we've just read. He says... I beseech yow meekly for the mercy of God that ye pray for me that Christ have mercy on me and forgive my guilts and namely of my translations and editings of worldly vanities for which I revoke in my retractions. So fun stuff. That's the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, so he's guilty about the whole thing. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't have written it. Daniel, that was an ordeal. A romp. It, it was a romp, actually. I actually had a really good time recording this one, but um, that's two episodes worth of romp. I'm romped out. Yeah, me too. So, should we do some casting? Okay. Hit me. You're not going to like this. Are you doing it? Okay. I guarantee you're not going to like I this. I just want to know who's playing the second yeoman. <laughs> yeoman there was a period in the late 90s and early 2000s in the US where they did all of these TV miniseries epics and they all had like these really great budgets, a ton of character actors, they did a ton of advertising, so it was like a major event and everyone watched them. And they did an Arabian Nights, they did a sort of Iliad, Helen of Troy thing, a Cleopatra thing, the Mists of Avalon, like they just had loads and loads of them. And I feel like this is what this treatment needs. We need two dozen veteran character actors just performing their little hearts out on like a three night CBS viewing event and every fucking person in the world watches it. They did this though. Sorry to disappoint you, but in the late 90s, early 90s in the UK, they had a, they had an Arabian Nights one. Omid was in it, I remember. And they had a, maybe it was the same one. Maybe, was Doug Gray Scott and John Leguizamo in it? I don't remember. It doesn't, I, maybe not. But they had a modern, like a modern day adaptation of it. They did about six of the stories. All I remember is that the Miller's Tale has Billy Piper as Alison. Of course it does. And uh, that Irish guy, the Northern Irish guy, um, the guy with the curly hair. James Nasbat. Yes. He's, he's Nicholas. So there you go. Sorry to disappoint. Or maybe you're, you're on. You're bang on. You're on. You're I'm on the thrilled money. by this now. Yes, this is this is what I wanted, and Daniel, you delivered. 
Good. It's there. Look at that. Yeah, it's nice to have a casting that already exists. I mean, it's not a three-night CBS event, which was a very <laughs> special set of um, shitty CGI, uh, is what we're talking right. about okay. here. I don't quite know what would be CGI'd in this. I'd find something. Okay. Right, and now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. So there are a lot of blokes getting very angry in the comments section of this particular tale. There shouldn't be translations of Chaucer. Much of Chaucer's meaning comes through the language he uses. Take away the language and what's left is no longer Chaucer. If you can't read Chaucer's Middle English, just skip the Canterbury Tales. Anything worth doing is worth taking time over. No. Chaucer's language is worth learning. This type of shortcut is a travesty. If you're reading the translation for pleasure, be aware you're not reading Chaucer. If you're reading it in class, transfer to another class. Your professor doesn't know what he's doing. One star. I like that the professor's a man. Automatically. All the best ones are. This crap is barely readable. First off, Chaucer has no understanding of English grammar. It's more like it. Sorry if you get bored <laughs> Second, word choice is poor. I don't know what Jeff was smoking, but lines like, there fill as it by falleth times mo when then this child has souked but a throw. One star. I didn't like this for the same reason I don't like Shakespeare. It's too low, too vulgar, too coarse, too common. It's so petty, so inconsequential. I'm not interested in how ordinary people live their lives when there isn't something greater at stake. My soul longs my soul longs for grandeur, adventure, heroism, the high and noble and great. One star. Yes, Shakespeare, who famously never had anything grand or noble or heroic in any of his plays, well, famously. And also, what about the nice tale? Daniel I know. Now for a little bit of long-awaited analysis. Did you like this? I was very excited at the beginning, and then I, kind of, <laughs> I sort of got a bit bogged down at a certain point. At some point in the Reeves tale, I started getting irritated. I think it was the Geordie accents. And then also, part of the way through the Wife of Bath's prologue, I also struggled. And then after that, I kind of grew cynical. <laughs> and jaded but i think overall i did like it but also whenever i do these summaries i end up liking the book so i don't know what about you yeah i i did i mean as soon as i gave up any pretense of being able to read it in the middle english but it kind of i i liked it actually it did feel a little bit like 24 sitcom gags in search of a pilot yeah i know what you mean also a lot of them are surprisingly similar stories aren't they yeah what's going on with all the intervention by the gods so, this no, is... I was weirded by I wrote that too, yeah. Thought you were supposed to be Christian. What's Pluto doing there? I mean, was there sort of, sort of, sort of like classical rediscovery in this period? So sort of like leading into the Renaissance. But this feels... I thought this was a little early for that, but I could be wrong. We are late medieval here, aren't we? Yeah. But they had like a lot of Latinate learning, because it's never... Although they talk about Greece, like Athens and stuff, it's never the Greek gods' names. It's always like Pluto and Saturn and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Uranus is never in it. For a lot of anuses in this, yeah, Uranus doesn't saying. show. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Right. I think classical learning was very strong amongst certain people in, at this time. 
a good classical knowledge, but it it feels sometimes like a proper pantheon is being invoked yeah. here in, in the midst of like a friar's tale or yeah, a whatever. Yeah, you're it, right. That's when you're en route to a pilgrimage, when you're all ostensibly there for a holy purpose. Yeah. Some people who, yeah, as you say, are there whose jobs are religious jobs that so they're all talking about pagan gods. Maybe oh. it's just like a narrative device. Like, because I said, like in Sir Orfeo, they have it as well. So maybe it's just like, maybe this has something to do with Chaucer apologizing as well, that it's kind of like, Within the realm of a story, we can have fun and talk about gods intervening and stuff, but we all know that Christ and God are the real gods. Maybe it's kind of like that. Maybe. And they're all like saying like, there's some like, you know, some peasants like, oh, Cato said this, but Th Theophrastus said that. So, <laughs> and you're just like, come on, mate. What is Chaucer doing there? Like, is he trying to show off or did everybody really have these classical illusions on the tip of their tongue? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm calling in to complain about the use of offensive language on this podcast because you've just said the word renaissance, uh, which is as bad as it gets. Let's see. How do I keep this short? Right. The renaissance is a lie. Uh, and there was lots of knowledge about classical authors, both Greek and Roman during the Middle Ages. Church scholars loved Aristotle, loved Greek philosophy, Roman rhetoric, that kind of stuff. Uh, despite them being pagans, maybe a bit of unease about them being pagans, but overall, throughout the Middle Ages, classical references, classical knowledge, totally normal. Uh, yeah. And so please, don't ever use that kind of language again. Okay, you wanted to talk a little, unsurprisingly, you wanted to talk about class. We've already said it's a bit like A Thousand and One Nights, it's a bit like the Decameron, so like these kind of compilation narratives, but it's more about the difference is that it's about kind of giving voice to whole swathes of society because the other ones are a bit more like it's just Shahrazad mm -hmm. and the king or, or the Decameron's about all these like you know posh teenagers this is like you know we've got the, all the aristocrats the priests the yeomen the tradesmen all the different lackeys we've got men and women so it's got a more like sort of social vision which I thought was interesting but I, I didn't know quite how he does it because it's quite nasty isn't it it's not like a utopian work is it they're all kind of in conflict with each other they're all like abusing each other and fleecing each other it's, it's a vision of a society that's governed by conflict well uh, but i just think about our sort of modern vision of the middle ages the sort of nostalgia vision that is trotted out the, you the know forelock tugging world where it's yeah and it's this is obviously really troubling on a lot of levels it's everyone knew their place everyone was happy uh, there were only white people yeah. there were you know and it's, it's just this sort of this vision of like this very docile merry old england and i'm like and yet look yeah, here how corrupt and how angry it is, it is. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's a really like yeah and everyone's grafting and yeah do you reckon that that's in part maybe what's happening with some of the allusions back to ancient greece and rome though is there is there a nostalgia thing happening there well yeah exactly like, i suppose that we're talking about our vision of the middle ages that's kind of half informed and i suppose they have a half informed vision of yeah the classical world do you think it's a misogynistic work it's ambiguous because on the one hand you have the wife of bath's tale which sort of rewards a rapist but it rewards a rapist for submitting to the will of women and actually trying to learn something yeah. about women and not being shallow so it's but it it still doesn't give any recompense to the poor woman who was actually harmed you know what i mean no, so it's yeah. it sits on easily with me but i'm hesitatingly maybe willing to say at least women are given slightly more agency even if all the agency is just to get their end away with hotter guys. Yeah. Well, exactly, yeah. It's quite misanthropic, really. Yeah. That's, maybe we could just conclude with that, but I thought I should also mention that Chaucer was himself involved in a rape trial. Maybe we should... There's been a recent update about that. There's... Yeah, people are talking about them, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. yeah. But, but, but it was a woman apparently called Cecilia Champagne, 
But the problem was that back then rape had a very broad meaning, which included kidnapping. And also, back then, the injured party in a rape trial was like the man that sort of like, you know, like her dad or her husband. So it's kind of like, did Chaucer help this woman escape a kind of horrible man, her dad or husband, or did he, you know, like kidnap her, or did he actually like rape her in the way that we understand? We don't know. But I think that's worth bearing in mind. What what was the new data that you knew? From from what I understand, I haven't actually seen this uh, myself, but there was, I saw everyone on medievalist Twitter sort of going, oh my God, there's about to be some updates. There's like a conference and somebody has just discovered something. And then I think the fallout is like, we understand maybe a little bit more. There's more nuance, but it's still ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so should we talk a bit about like the form? Uh, sure. So that's kind of, that's interesting because it parallels the class stuff, doesn't it? That we've got all these kind of stories that, reflect their speaker and have stories within stories and there's all like different genres reflecting different social classes and stuff. I quite like that. I don't know about you. Maybe maybe I'm being unfair here. I don't know how many genres or how much genre nuance there was in sort of long form fiction. Doesn't look like much. Well, I don't, I just don't know, but I would have liked more or rather I would have liked the, because we actually do have a fair range of genre in this, mm. but some of it is so god awfully dull mm. where I was, but like, the stuff that actually you want to talk about, you want to have a laugh about, it's much of the same. It's body humor and farts and rapes and yeah. you know, sex stuff. The usual and, hilarious things. Yeah. yeah. So, if only we swapped every rape for a fart, we live in a happy world. Well, <laughs> my two cents. <laughs> what an idiot, sorry. So, but the clerk I thought was interesting because he modulates his style for the rest of the audience. So there is that kind of, yeah. there's a kind of psychology there informed or like reflected in genre. Where they're, yeah, they say, we don't want your highfalutin stuff, tell us something fun. And he's like, okay, recalibrating, and he does. Yeah, but we can kind of almost see it in the style. Yeah. Like, still like in stanzas and things, I felt like there was something yeah. on there. I don't know. Um, yeah, also about it being funny, I've got my little, my obligatory Nietzsche quote. This is in the genealogy of morals, I heard that sniff. So, <laughs> to, today, this is what Nietzsche writes, Today we read the whole of Don Quixote with a bitter taste in our mouths, almost with a sense of torture, and so would seem very alien, very inscrutable to its author and his contemporaries who thought it the most cheerful of books. And I kind of feel like the same here, I bet like readers of Chaucer at the time would have been like, ha ha ha, this is hilarious, but to me it seems really mean-spirited and... Like, a lot of it seems really nasty. Yeah, and then, but the cynicism, you're right, this is a very, um, for something that sort of masquerades as a wink, it's actually a little bit of a sneer. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, intertextuality. Do you like that stuff? I was more confused by it because I wasn't sure if it was intertextual or just a coincidence. In books, typically, you only have one person named John. You only have one... One horse called Scott. <laughs> yes! So I, I kept blinking, thinking I had missed something. Where I was like, wait, I've, I've mixed these characters up. Wasn't that so-and-so? And then I was like, oh, that's a weird detail. Is that supposed to be... So was that supposed to be that person from the other story? Is this an illusion? I thought... I had a really crazy thought about that. Because there's a bit in the... Which was the story with the yeoman that's actually a devil? Is that the Friar's Tale? That's the Friar's Tale. In the Friar's Tale, there's the bit where he's like, when you disguise yourself as a human, do you use a pre-existing body? Or do you, like, derive it from new elements? And I kind of thought maybe, like... That was a sort of meta-textual or a self-commentary thing that... Is there some kind of like metaphysical thing going on that Chaucer would be like, every story should be recomposed out of other elements from other stories? Oh, I feel like, I feel like, Daniel, that's good. I don't know what that would mean, but there's something weird going on there. This is a, what a demon in story form repurposing 
parts of the previous things as it goes. Oh, that's yeah, up. Yeah, I feel like Cho that Chosa's like, I've got a body of traditions. It's cannibalizing itself. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to just kind of play on them and, and show how many ways I can kind of recontort them. Daniel, that is exciting. Yes. Um, well, I I was kind of a bit weirded out by that when that summoner character says that in the Friars Tale. I was like, is this like a self-commentary thing? Also, this is a question for Justine. I don't know how the stories were consumed or like who was, who read Chaucer. Was this ever in like play format or was this like sort of read aloud in exactly. pubs? It yeah. had to have been surely because I mean we were still doing that especially if it's sort of told in a sort of language that's the more common tongue. We were still doing this well into the 19th century. I can't imagine it wasn't like hey find the one bloke in town who knows how to read and mm. he'll read aloud. But even within that it's like you got whole bits of Recapitulating Cato or whatever. Something for everyone, Daniel. If the local lord is in the <laughs> maybe, pub that yeah, night. Uh, hello. Yes, if I may berate you one more time here. Actually, uh, books at this point in the Middle Ages were a lot easier to produce, a lot quicker to produce, a lot cheaper to produce, um, and literacy rates were a lot higher. So people probably could actually get their hands on a copy of the Canterbury Tales and read it for themselves. Um, you know, it's not like they could just walk into a Waterstones, but the availability of texts probably a lot higher than people initially think. And yes, just to go back to something mentioned in your first episode on the Canterbury Tales, there is in fact uh, evidence of manuscripts in Middle English that still survive that contain texts by Cato. So yeah, Daniel, maybe a carpenter could have quoted Cato. Anyway, bye. It's like a Peter Bruegel painting, isn't it? The Lord's there, some brides there. There's a fat guy with a I was, pipe. I was thinking that this is this is um, Bruegel or Hieronymus Bosch or something where it's at. What is going on? This is much more Bosch than Bruegel, I think. I think it's much more Bruegel than Bosch. There's hardly any devils and there's a lot more asses. Oh, honey, have you seen Bosch? Have you seen how many asses they're are? They're not real asses, they're devil's asses. In Bruegel, they're people's asses. They're heavenly and asses, and they have flowers sticking out of them. Yeah, well, in, in Bruegel, they're fighting in people's faces. I don't think, I, you can't get more Chaucerian than that, a fart in a person's face. Listeners, what do you think? Is it more Bruegelian or Boschian? And have we completely turned you off from our podcast by being as wanky as possible? Is it more Bruegel or is it more Bosch? Yeah. We're, we're men of the people, Daniel and I. Yeah. We're like Tiberius Gracchus. Hail Caesar. I'm so sorry, listeners. We're the worst. Yep. Justine, if you would like a moment to say any parting words about this, you are very welcome to. And if not, I will cut this bit. If you're a medievalist that's been affected by some of the content of this podcast, please go to our website for more support. www.renaissanceisasham.com Hooray. I also apologize for this episode. I too apologize, but come on, bitch, you're having the time of your life right now. Not to Justine, I meant to our audience, and to Jesus. I also apologize to Jesus. Right, so, here's some advice. With really long epics like this, especially ones where it's a lot of smaller tales comprising a big tale, so things like The Thousand and One Nights, or Baron Munchausen, or Don Quixote, don't try to read this all in one go. You really have to pace yourself. It, you sort of enjoy one a day. I remember when I read Baron Munchausen, that was the advice given by the, the person who wrote the introduction, and they're basically like, listen, this is not you know, like a beer or a glass of wine that you sip luxuriously and consistently. This is a tequila shot, one and done, walk away sort of deal. Mm. So, um, yeah, just I, I I had to do that with this by yeah, the end. Yeah, it is a bit like that, isn't it? Yeah. Now, our clue to the next episode, which is not another episode of the Canterbury Tales. 
So, Daniel, in previous seasons, we've actually covered some authors from the same family, the Brontes. We've done Wuthering Heights, and we've done Jane Eyre, but something's missing. There is a third one. Anne? Who? Anne? I don't, I don't know who any Anne would be, unless you mean, um, Antoinette. Oh, very good, very good. Wink! Yeah. So please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen. You know what to do. We have an Instagram. We have a TikTok. Just follow us wherever you can. And uh, Daniel and I will see you guys next time. See ya. Uh, yep. <laughs> Fart noise. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart. And cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.